Good morning, church. It's okay, you can say good morning where you are as well. I hear you in spirit, but I do miss you. I miss each and every one of you, and I hope you miss not just me, but you miss one another. Uh, it is good. Uh, it is good during a time like this for us to, as Matt said earlier, uh, feel the the absence of one another and lament that, long for that. Uh, we are grateful for this technology. I'm grateful for Scott and those who have worked to make this possible. But let us just admit that this is a poor substitute for the ecclesia. This is a substitute, but it's a poor substitute for the gathering of God's people. And so even today, as you are in your living rooms or wherever you are, as I'm here with three other guys uh, trying to pull this off, uh, let us long for the gathering of God's people. Let us pray that God would bring us together again in short order. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn to Genesis chapter 23. This morning we're back in our study of Genesis after having been out of it last week. Uh, last week we took a little bit of a time out from our study of Genesis and we don't know how long this is la- going to last so we're going to get back into our study and I do believe that in this chapter of Genesis we're going to see some very clear application to what we're living through right now in our country and in our world. Last week we talked about how the suffering that the world is enduring at the hands of the coronavirus is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us and in us. We talked about how this suffering is far outweighed by future glory. But we also talked about how this virus is an example of how creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth for the revealing of the sons of glory before God. And that this virus is uh, an example of how creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And that it's just another illustration to us, as if we needed another one. This virus is just another illustration to us that this world that we live in, that is, that is our home for now, this land, if you will, this land is broken. And the virus illustrates that, that this land is imperfect, that it's flawed, that it is broken. This is a world, this is a land in which there is no short supply of suffering, whether it's at the hands of natural disasters like hurricanes and floods and disease and virus, or whether it's the hand of man-made disasters like war and genocide and the like. There is no short supply of suffering and things like disappointment and discouragement in this land. All around us there are reminders that, that this land that is our home today is broken. And yet for now, it is where we abide. But it is not our home. It is not where our citizenship truly lies. 
As we suffer in this world, we are reminded that we have a better home, another land, a better land and a better country that awaits us. It's the land that Peter wrote of in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, when he said, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's that new heaven and that new earth that, that John was given a glimpse of when he was given the revelation of the future. Where he was seeing that new heaven and that new earth that is part of that future glory, eternal perspective, and the hope of God's promises that are yet unfulfilled. And we're tempted to give up on that hope that there is such a thing as a new heaven and a, and a new earth and a better country and a new homeland that awaits us. We are tempted to give up hope that God has in his promises a better homeland for his people. Some 3,500 years ago, the Israelites were likewise tempted to give up on hope on God's promises of a better homeland for his people. God had always promised a better land for them. All the way back through the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But 3,500 years ago, when, when Genesis was first written by Moses, they had been in Egypt for 400 years in slavery, separated from that land of promise. And that generation, that first generation from the Exodus that took part in the liberation out of slavery in Egypt, they had the chance to, to immediately enter back into that promised land, but they were too fearful. They were scared of the, of the giants that were in the land. And so for 40 more years, they were wandering in that wilderness. And we can certainly imagine that they too, in that time, were tempted to give up on God's promises of a homeland. And this is where the people of Israel first began to read God's story of Abraham and Sarah. And they would have been encouraged by the story in this chapter. Because in this chapter, they would have been encouraged to not give up on God's promises of a homeland, a better land. To not give up on God's promise of a better country. Because although the setting of this chapter is the death and burial of Abraham's wife Sarah, the lesson of this chapter is for a people who live in a world that is broken, who live in a land that is broken, to assure them that, is a better, that there is a better land and a better country that awaits them. So let's read Genesis chapter 23, the, 23, the entire chapter. Follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. 
The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession to, in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that was in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we corporately come before you thankful for this substitute gathering, grateful for this book that we hold in our hands, thankful to you that we know it is your breath. And Father, we come to you expectantly, asking, Father, that you would speak to us. God, not, not through me, not through anything that I would say, but simply from what you would say, from your word. Pray, Father, this morning that you would speak to your people and encourage them that the grave is not the end of your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 23 can be divided into three sections. First of all, in verses 1 through 2, we have the death of Sarah and Abraham mourning her death. And then at the end of the chapter, we have in verses 19 and 20, we have the burial of Sarah. And in between, in verses 3 through 18, 16 verses, the bulk of the chapter is devoted to this negotiation between Abraham and the Hittites for a burying spot for Sarah. Most English translations attempt to put some kind of subheading or title over chapters and sections of the Bible. And most English translations try to entitle chapter 23 with something like Sarah's death and burial or something of that nature. 
And that is undoubtedly part of what this chapter is about. We're told in verse 1 that she lived 127 years. And we should note that she is the only woman in the entire Bible whose lifespan is recorded for us. Which should tell us something about her importance in Jewish history. She has been revered throughout generations as a godly woman and notable for her faith. She is held up in 1 Peter chapter 3 as an example of purity and godly submission. She's held up in Hebrews 11 as noteworthy and an example of faith. Now her faith wasn't perfect. Her faith faltered just like that of her husband. Most notably when she gave her Egyptian handmaiden Hagar to her husband so that she would have a son through her husband. Her faith was not perfect, but it was undoubtedly exemplary. And she and Abraham had been married for over 60 years. Imagine that. She was 65 when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And she dies when she's 127 years old. So they were married at least for 62 years that we know of, but probably a lot longer than that because we don't know when they got married back in Mesopotamia. So it's understandable that we read in verse 2 that Abraham both mourned and wept for her. The writer's use of both of those words tells us that Abraham grieved fully for his wife. This is the only occasion in the scriptures where we're told that Abraham wept. We're not told that he wept when he was called out of his family land in Ur of the Chaldeans. We're not told that he, that he wept when his nephew Lot was, was kidnapped or when he had to send Ishmael and Hagar away. And we're not even told that Abraham wept in the previous chapter, chapter 22, when God told him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, presumably he did cry in those events, but the scriptures don't record it. But it does here. The love of his life of over 62 years is now gone and he is grieved. Parenthetically, this should remind us that it is good and it's right and it's okay to grieve the loss of our loved ones who precede us in death. Because death is the final curse. It is our final enemy. We, as Christians, we do not embrace death as a part of life. That's not the Christian approach to death. We don't embrace death as a part of life. Death is an enemy. Death is part of the curse of the fall. It is one of the consequences of man's sin. And so we grieve, but we grieve differently. We don't grieve as those who do not have hope. Because we know that Christ has defeated all of our enemies at the cross, including our enemy, death. So it's good and right and, and okay to grieve the loss of our loved ones. Because death is part of the curse that Jesus came to defeat. So Abraham does that. He grieves the loss of Sarah. He weeps and, he, and we're told that he also mourns, which probably include all of the aspects of Jewish mourning. He probably sat in sackcloth. He probably poured ashes on his head in Jewish mourning. But part of the practice of mourning also 
included the burial of the loved ones, which leads us to the second section of this chapter, where Abraham negotiates with the Hittites for a burial spot. We should note here that beginning in verse 3, the narrative of this story slows down to a crawl, and we're given this blow-by-blow account of the negotiations that take place for the burial plot. Think about that. In the first two verses of this chapter, some 15 to 20 years are fast-forwarded. But in verses 3 through 18, in 16 chapters, time slows to a crawl. And just a few minutes of negotiation take place in 16 verses. That should tell us something about the purpose of this chapter. That perhaps it's not primarily about the death and burial of Sarah, that it's about something more significant than that. More on that in just a moment. But there are seven steps. There there are some clear steps in this negotiation. And in the first step, found in verses 3 and 4, We see Abraham's initial request. Abraham approaches the Hittites, who apparently own the land surrounding this area where Sarah died. He approaches them and says in verse 4, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So he calls himself a sojourner and a foreigner. And as such, he had no rights to land. He had no right to just possess land or even to buy it from an individual. He was required to ask permission to purchase land in a public setting. And that's exactly what he does in this passage. He is requesting to purchase land. It says give here, but we know that that what he means because of what we see later in verse 9, what he means by give is not give it to me for free, but give it to me for a price, as we'll see. So step two, they offer him the use of any part of the land that he wants. Note that they don't give Abraham what he asked for. He asks asks for a price. He asks to purchase it, but they don't don't give him that. Listen to verses five and six. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bear your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So they say, hey, instead of buying land to bury your loved one, just use our land. We're going to give you use of our land instead of giving you land to purchase. Now, that may sound magnanimous. That may sound generous of them, but that's not what Abraham was after. That's not what he wanted. That's not what he was asking for. And to me, this tells me something about how perhaps Abraham was clued into the fact that something more significant was going on here than just finding a place to bury Sarah. Because if that was all he was after here, if all he was after was a place to bury his wife, then why not just take the land that was offered to him? He was after something more. He realized something else was going on here. Something more significant. So instead, in step three, now he asks for a specific parcel of land. Look at verses seven through nine. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites. So we see Abraham humbling himself here before the people of Canaan. He bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron 
the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So Abraham's already scoped out the land, and he knows the perfect burying place. And it's in this field that belongs to this guy named Ephron. And at the end of Ephron's field, there was this cave, the cave of Machpelah. And to Abraham, this is the perfect place to bury Sarah. And so he says, for the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now, I want us to begin to note the formality of the transaction that's taking place in this passage. He says, let him, let him give it to me for the full price in your presence. Just as with any real estate transaction, there has to be witnesses, and the same is true here. The, the people of the Hittites will be the witnesses for this real estate transaction, the purchase of Ephron's cave. So he has to buy that specific plot of land. Step four, we have Ephron's response. He, he offers to give that particular plot of land to Abraham. Look at verses 10 and 11. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city. Again, note the formality of the negotiations here. It's at the gate of the city where all of the city business took place. And Ephron says to Abraham in verse 11, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. And so again, Ephron doesn't do what Abraham asks. Abraham asks for a price for the field to buy it from him, but Ephron doesn't do that. He offers instead to give it to him. And not just the cave, but the whole field as well. Now, some commentators believe that what Ephron is actually doing here is being a very savvy negotiator. Of course he wasn't to give it away, going to give this land away for free. But he was using this as a setup for the price that he's going to give him in just a moment. And so we could say that he's buttering him up for the big ask that is coming in just a bit. Other commentators see here a likeness back to when Abraham refused to take the bribe from the king of Sodom back in chapter 14 after Abraham defeated Ketelomer. But in either of those cases, the offer of the spoils of war from the king of Sodom in chapter 14, or here in chapter 23, the offer of the field of Ephron, neither of those offers come without a quid pro quo. We can be sure. And so Abraham was not going to be beholden to Ephron of the Hittites any more than he was going to be beholden to the king of Sodom back in chapter 14. But for whatever the reason, Ephron offers to give the land to Abraham. So how does Abraham respond? Step five, Abraham asks to buy that specific plot of land. Verses 12 and 13, no matter what the price is, he wants to buy that land of Ephron. Then Abraham, Abraham bowed down, verse 12, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, again, demonstrating both the humility of Abraham and the formality of the process. He bows, bows down before the people of the land in their presence, these witnesses, verse 13. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. So let me, bury, let me buy that land that you're talking about, Ephron. 
Let me buy it from you no matter what the price is. So in step six, Ephron names that price. He gives them the price of the field. And the price is 400 shekels of silver, which, by the way, was probably a highly inflated price for that land. Later in 2 Samuel chapter 24, King David buys the temple mount on which the temple will be built in Jerusalem for 50 shekels of silver. And here, Abraham buys this one little field with a cave in it and some trees for 400 shekels of silver, eight times the amount. So it was a very high price, way too high. But look, look how smooth of a negotiator Ephron is. He, he, he's able here to, to name this very high price without actually asking for it. Look at, look at what he says in verse four, uh, 14. Ephron answered Abraham, and then verse 15, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your debt. So he still comes across as this magnanimous benefactor, this magnanimous landowner, what is 400 shekels of silver between you and me? But before he can change his price, before he can uh, reduce that amount, before he can even pull that offer off the table, Abraham jumps on the offer. And in the final step of the negotiation, step seven, he buys the land. Look at verse 16. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So he buys the field and the cave for 400 shekels of silver. And, and again, we're, we're reminded of the formality of this negotiation. Yet again, we're told that this is done in the hearing of the Hittites. So, he, so he's got the witnesses. He's got the exact price, 400 shekels of silver. Uh, a shekel was a weight measurement. It was about 11 grams during this time. But we're told not only does he give the exact price, but the exact currency rate, the, ex the exact exchange rate, because he says that that weight was measured out according to the current weights of the merchants. So he he's got the exact price, and he's got the exact exchange rate of currency. We're beginning to see the, the formality of this real estate transaction that is taking place here. And then in verses 17 and 18, we have a legal description of the property. A legal description as if it's being entered into the county records there in the county of the Hittites, whatever it was. Look at verse 17 and 18. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with a cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of the city. <coughs> That's the legal description of that property. Now, I can describe the property on which our house exists in Lawrenceville in two different ways. For one, I can give you the street address, which I won't do because this is Facebook Live. The other way I can do this is I can give you the legal description as it's described in the county records in the courthouse. So here's the legal description of our property. Land lot 66 of the 7th district, lot 16, block D, unit 3 of St. John's Park subdivision. According to the plat recorded in plat book 74, page 54 and following of the land records of Gwinnett County. That is the legal description of the property where we live, 
that's recorded in the Gwinnett County records housed in the archives at the Gwinnett County Courthouse in Lawrenceville, the county seat of our county, Gwinnett. These documents, made official by witnesses and attorneys, and formally recovered, uh, recorded in those government archives, prove that we own the property where we live. Actually, they prove that the mortgage holder owns the property where we live, and we're just making payments. But mortgage, prop, mortgage uh, lenders notwithstanding, those documents with that legal description say that we are landowners in Gwinnett County. And that's exactly what we have here in verses 16 through 18. Every detail needed for a formal real estate transaction is recorded here. We've got a buyer in Abraham. We've got a seller in Ephron. We've got an exact price, 400 shekels. We, we, we've got a, a description of the land, an exact description of the land, and we've got the witnesses because it's done in the presence of the Hittites at the gate of the city. And so now, after this transaction has transpired, Abraham, for the first time ever, now owns a piece of land in Canaan. It's small, it's seemingly insignificant. But it's his. Now he's not a sojourner. He's not a foreigner. Now he's a landowner in Canaan, in the promised land. That's huge, as we'll see in just a moment. Now, verses 19 and 20 close out the chapter. That's the third section where we see the burial of Sarah. Verse 19 says, After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So Abraham buries his wife Sarah in this newly purchased land that he has. And then in verse 20, Moses concludes the story, and I think this is noteworthy here. He closes the story not with Abraham grieving over his wife of over 60 years, but he closes this story with yet another nod to the formal contract the formal transaction that has taken place. Verse 20, the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now that's legal language. That phrase made over as property in the Hebrew it could, could be the form of that verb to deed, as in it was deeded over to him such that he is now recognized as the legal landowner. So as we look across the landscape of chapter 23, we see that there are only two verses at the very beginning that are devoted to the death of Sarah. There's only one verse at the end that's devoted to her burial. But there are 16 verses that are devoted to this negotiation between Abraham and the Hittites. So this chapter is not primarily about the death and burial of Sarah. That's part of it, but it's not the main reason for this passage. So what is the main reason for this passage? This is a very secular chapter of Scripture. God is not mentioned one time, except in verse 6, when the Hittites call Abraham a prince of God. Other than that, God's not mentioned. In reality, when we look at this chapter, it looks like a very... Secular story about a secular business transaction. So what are we to learn from this? Are we to learn how to negotiate? 
Is all that we are to glean from chapter 23 of Genesis that it's important for us to purchase a good plot of land on which to bury our relatives? No, of course not. But in order for us to get the point of chapter 23, we need to understand it within the larger context of the story of Genesis. And really within the larger context of the story of Abraham. Back in chapter 12, God called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go to a land that I will show you. In chapter 12, when he gets to the land of Canaan, God says to him, this is the land that I am giving to you and to your offspring. To your offspring I will give this land. In the next chapter when he and Lot, his nephew, are separated, God says to him there, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Look northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Two chapters later in chapter 15, the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur, out of, Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And then Abraham asked, O Lord, how, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And then the Lord said to him, Well, bring me a heifer three years old. Bring me a female goat three years old. Bring me a ram three years old. And we have this whole covenant cutting ceremony that we saw there in chapter 15. Where he had Abraham cut the animals in half. And then God passed through the midst of the animals in the form of a, of a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot. Signifying unto Abraham, Abraham may it be done to me as was done to these animals if I do not keep my promise. And the promise that he was ratifying in that covenant cutting, cutting ceremony was the promise of land. That, that there is a land that I'm promising to you that will be yours and that of your offspring. That was the whole reason for the covenant cutting ceremony in chapter 15. Then two, ver two chapters later, chapter 17. God changed his name from Abram to Abraham because he was going to be the father of a multitude of nations. And after repeating the, the promises of offspring, that your offspring will be more than the dust of the earth, they will be more numerous than the stars in the night sky, he said, then he said in verse 8 of chapter 17, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So the context of the story of chapter 23 is that God has entered into a covenant with Abraham. And in this covenant, God has made promises to Abraham, unilateral promises, promises of offspring, promises that his offspring will be the beginning of a great nation, promises that through his offspring, through Abraham's seed, his offspring will be the blessing, will bless all the nations of the earth. But it's also a promise of land. Now the promise of offspring has been fulfilled at this point in Abraham's life. In the birth of Isaac. But the promise of land has not been fulfilled. Not in the least. He's living in the land. But it's not his. It's not his possession. He's not a landowner. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 verse 9, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, 
living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Listen to what Stephen says of Abraham as he's recounting the life and faith of Abraham in his famous sermon in Acts chapter 7. Stephen says this, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God moved him from there into this land in which you are now living, Stephen says to his hearers there on the streets of Jerusalem. Abraham then moved to this land in which you are now living. Then he says this, Yet God gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no son. And so he was living in the land, and he had the promise that it would be his, but it was not his. But now it is. Now he does own land. Now he has a possession in Canaan. It's small. It's not much. But church, that little plot of land is a deposit of the promise to come. It's a reminder that fulfillment of the promise is coming. Pastor Andy Davis notes that, that this field and the cave that was in it is a reminder that God's promises are not exhausted at the grave. Whether Abraham was aware of it or not, I think he was, but whether he was aware of it or not, what he was doing in chapter 23 was negotiating for a present peace of a future inheritance. This is just a small field with a few trees and a cave for burying. And by the way, not only was Sarah buried there, but this plot of land became very famous in the annals of Jewish history because Abraham was buried there as well. And after Abraham, Rebekah. And then Abraham's son, Isaac. And then Leah. And then Jacob. And then finally Joseph as well, Jacob's son, as he's dying in Egypt, he makes his family promise him, bring my bones back to this very plot so that I may be buried here as well. It was more than just a burial plot. It was a deposit of the full promise from God. We've been walking through Abraham's life for a number of months now, seeing all these tests of faith that he's walked through. And he's walked through all of them at this point. He's faltered at some points, but all the while his faith has been growing. His faith has been tested and it's matured. And now his faith in God and God's promises are in full bloom, bloom at this point in his life. And so he knew that this plot of land here meant more than just a nice place to bury his wife and himself and his sons after him. It was the beginning of God's promise of land. Abraham knew that God had bigger plans in place than just this cave at Mechpelah and Ephraim's field. And Abraham also knew, because of what we know about him in the book of Hebrews, Abraham also knew that God had bigger plans than just the land of Canaan as well. He knew that God was pointing to an eternal homeland. 
Listen to the writer of Hebrews as he recounts the the life of Abraham, the faith of Abraham, and what Abraham was looking forward to at this point in his life. Hebrews 11, verses 8 and following. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Then look at verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That church was not a reference to the land of Canaan. That was reference to a land that is better, a country that is better, an inheritance that is more lasting than even the land of Canaan. The writer of Hebrews continues this thought in verse 13 and following of of chapter 11. says, these all died in faith, referring to Abraham and Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking about the land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, Abraham didn't see the fulfillment of the promise of land in his lifetime. But he died in faith, believing that God was preparing a greater inheritance. He was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was was desiring, as the writer of Hebrews says, a better country, a heavenly one, a city prepared by God. And church, this is what awaits all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. And he wasn't talking there about this earth, this broken earth, this broken land where there are wars and hurricanes and diseases and viruses. He wasn't talking about inheriting this earth. He was talking about the new earth, the new Jerusalem. John saw it in his revelation on the island of Patmos. As he recorded it in the book of Revelation, the first four verses of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is what Jesus promised when he, for, for those who, who come to him in believing faith. He promised that he would come back for them. John 14 Verses 1 through 6, let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to, to myself, that where I am, that you, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And then Thomas the doubter said to him, Lord, we don't know the way you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the promise of those who've come to faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope to be rescued from what they deserve. So church, the lesson of this passage of scripture is so much more profound than just a recounting of the death and burial of Sarah. It's it's, it's more profound than just a secular recounting of a negotiation for a plot of land. The lesson of this passage of scripture, chapter 23 of Genesis, is do not lose heart in this broken land. Do not lose heart in this this broken land, for a better land awaits us. A better country awaits us. And so, church, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve, but we have a hope that goes beyond this life. Paul told, told the Corinthians, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now our hope goes beyond this life to the next. Our hope goes beyond the grave because our hope, our hope is in the resurrection. Because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of our enemies are defeated, including the enemy, death. And not only that, but Jesus' resurrection was for us a first fruits resurrection because it points to our resurrection. Our resurrection from this land to a better land, a better country. A heavenly one. A city whose foundation is designed and built by the Lord our God. For Abraham, that little plot of land there in Hebron was a deposit of the promise to come. For us, I think our deposit of the promise to come is threefold. First of it is is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit that is given to us as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Secondly, our deposit is the word of God that recounts for us these faith-building stories telling us what is to come and encouraging faith in God's promises that are yet unfulfilled. But I think thirdly, our deposit in this life and in this broken land is the church, the church of Jesus Christ, where we have a slice of our inheritance in the here and now, just a present piece of our future inheritance. An imperfect and incomplete picture of God's kingdom on earth. Just a shadow of what is to come. And so church, let us not hold too tightly to the things on this earth and in this land. Because there are better things coming. There's a better land coming. And don't lose heart. Don't lose heart when we are confronted by the reality that this is a broken world Because there is a better country coming. A better one awaits us. And church, when you die, die well. As Abraham and Sarah did, die in faith. Die believing on God's promises. When we draw our final breath, most of God's promises to us will yet be unfulfilled. Will we die in faith, believing God in those promises. Let's pray.